Well, today we do celebrate the triumphal uh, entry of Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that was a very, whether you, even though it couldn't be seen, especially in comparison of uh, the might of Rome, but that was a military conquest. They had been trying to kill Jesus for at least a couple of years, and he kept putting them off, kept evading and everything, but he like, his, 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 had his eyes set towards Jerusalem, knowing the timing needed to be that he needed to die at the Passover in Jerusalem at that particular time, a time even outlined in the book of Daniel. So when he came in, he came in on the foal of a donkey in humility. And instead of killing all the Romans, which he certainly could have done, and taking over the Sanhedrin and banishing them and taking over all the world and building Solomon's empire and that kind of thing, he just kept right on going to the cross. And in that cross, he won the war. Oswald Chambers says this, The cross of Jesus is the revelation of God's judgment on sin. Never tolerate the idea of martyrdom about the cross of Jesus. The cross was a supreme triumph in which the foundations of hell were shaken. There is nothing more certain in time or eternity than what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He switched the whole of the human race back right into a relationship with God. He made redemption the basis of human life. That is, he made a way for every son of man to get into communion with God. The cross did not happen to Jesus. He came on purpose for it. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There is a a militant, violent aspect to Christianity where Jesus subdued the powers of sin by giving up his whole life. And one of the wonderful things about uh, Christianity is that God actually uses us to combat the errors of our world. We are part of his army. So today in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, we're going to see our role as, uh, through the example of the Apostle Paul in combating for truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and pray that he would apply this truth to us today. Father, in faith, we turn to you and we thank you, God, for the revelation that comes to us in Jesus Christ. The vast majority of humanity will treat today just like any other day. But you have called us for this purpose, to remember what you did some 2,000 years ago when you entered into Jerusalem. And I pray, God, that uh, we would be triumphant in you and with you, God, as we, uh, we seek to walk in this life. Help us to never take a victim mentality. We are victorious soldiers in Christ Jesus, even if following you leads to our death. So bless us now, we pray, God, as we look to this precious passage of Scripture. We look to the example of the Apostle Paul as he focuses us upon the example of Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord that comes to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. I will read the verse in its, the passage in its entirety this morning because it's, uh, it's fairly short. Uh, and then we will look at uh, three different aspects of this passage, a call for action, verses 1 through 2, a combat for truth, verses 3 through 5, and a correction of error in verse 6. God says, and Paul writes, Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose 
to be courageous against some, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. So let's look, first of all, here for a call to action, verses 1 through 2. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a profound transition here in the letter. Uh, the, the front part of uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7 a deal with a call to repentance, and it's just loaded with theological truth. And then, as you recall, the last few Sundays we've looked at chapters 8 and 9, and there Paul is looking for evidence of the repentance and that the Corinthians would keep their promise of bringing together collection for the, the impoverished church in Jerusalem. So he's spurring them on, encouraged them to continue with that promise. But there's really a, a, a new section here in the letter that continues to the end, chapters 11 through 13. And there's an abrupt change of tone. If you read through 2 Corinthians, you really get a sense of that. And, and it would and be very helpful for you to discern what Paul is saying by understanding wh- where that tone is coming from. While the majority of the Corinthians have repented, they've welcomed Titus, they, they want to restore their relationship with Paul, they want to continue with the giving that they had promised to do, there's still these underlying uh, rebels, false teachers that, are, that have been uh, encouraging the Corinthians to go against Paul and therefore go against the gospel, and they're still around. Uh, their influence has been beat down a little bit, but they, they still have not been completely dealt with. They've not, been, they've not repented, they've not been excommunicated, whatever it might be. They might be still in positions of, of, uh, of authority. So Paul is kind of now addressing the unrepentant minority uh, and the presence of the false teachers who've not yet been removed, and that's why his language is kind of firm, kind of strict. For chapters 1 through 7, it, he just kind of gushes with love over the Corinthians and challenges them in many ways like a loving parent. Now he's pulling out the sword. Now he's pulling out the sword. He is a shepherd, and sometimes shepherds have to beat wolves with a stick, and that's what he is doing here. He says here, Paul, myself, I urge you, the meekness he's been writing for the team, uh, those others that have been going with him, now he's kind of talking about himself because he's having to defend himself. And he brings out this example, but he, he urges them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Christ himself said in uh, Matthew chapter 11, I am gentle and humble in heart. And, and, and Christ was gentle not because he was a wimp, but because he was strong enough to show self-control and to withhold a lot of the power that he had. And this was lost in much of the ancient world, and Paul is having to address this. But Paul himself has been an example of that. And we'll talk more about that uh, in in a bit. But as a good soldier of Christ, he doesn't want to use deadly force in combat. He longs for peace like any good soldier does. But he's willing to attack and go on the offensive when he is under orders and when it's necessary, and that's certainly the case in the Corinthian church right now. And he brings up this, he's kind of being ironic here and even sarcastic. He says, I who am face to face with you, but uh, bold towards you uh, when absent. Paul has been, is aware of the accusations that have been made with, uh, against him. They're basically accusing Paul of being a lamb when he's face to face and being a lion when he's far away. And again, what they do is is a classic misunderstanding of the virtue of humility and of meekness. 
Humility is actually show, shows a, a great amount of strength. You don't have to be self-promoting. You don't have to tear others down in order to get ahead. You can walk humbly and trust the Lord. Well, that takes a lot of self-control at times, doesn't it? But in, but in a culture where might makes right, think about what the Romans did for entertainment. They watched people get eaten by wild animals. They watched gladiators kill each other. When they conquered a new territory, and they did so in order to make money, they conquered a new territory, they enslaved the prisoners of war and brought them back in, in, in hard labor. They would execute entire towns. They would salt entire fields in order to keep people from inhabiting. That was the mindset of these people. So the people who were the false teachers in Corinth with that kind of mindset, they look at the gentleness of Jesus, they look at the humility of the Apostle Paul, and they think, that guy's a loser. Folks, that's just the way the, the, the world views us at times, as being losers who aren't shaking our fist in bitterness and trying to get vengeance all the time. It's so interesting, it's amazing how, how counter to natural human nature Christianity is. I think about the comparison, for instance, with Islam. Islam is a, has, has a, a vengeance thread throughout it. It's one reason why Islam is, is growing, because it appeals to people's desire to get vengeance, to use violence in order to accomplish religious goals, that sort of thing. And that's just, it, biblical Christianity is not like that. It's just not like that. So anyway, you got this world that embraces this might make rights, and the Apostle Paul is pointing to his humility, but because of his humility, they assume he's weak. Now, it, we remember a couple of years ago, we went through the book of Acts, and I mean, that is, a, that is a resume of pain for the Apostle Paul. Think about these people who think the Apostle Paul is weak. You remember what Paul went through. If you would just go through the back of the book of Acts, you see it. He faced hostile mobs. He was beaten. He was actually stoned to the point where they thought he was uh, dead. He was thrown in prison. He was in the center of riots. He was shipwrecked. There were plots on his life. He spoke the gospel without compromise before Roman governors, before the Sanhedrin. He even rebuked the apostle Peter before a Christian council. Paul was no wimp. But he was humble. He controlled that strength. He didn't manipulate people. He trusted in the Lord. And he followed at the example of Christ himself, who was humble. I couldn't help but think about 1 Peter chapter 2. This was the, the, the text behind Sheldon's book, what would, you know, what would Jesus Do?, and the WWJD bracelets long ago. Uh, it's, it's a good thing to look at Jesus as your example. The problem is with liberal theologians, they stop right there. He was just an example. They, they, they remove all the supernatural uh, that you find in Holy Scripture. But Peter goes on to say, but if when you do what is right and suffer and you endure it patiently, see, self-control, humility, meekness, this finds favor with God. Do you realize that? When you are maligned, slandered, and you don't seek revenge, you receive God's grace, God's favor. This finds favor with God. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. There's just, there is a 
power in humility. There is a power in not seeking your own. There is a power in trusting the Lord that the Apostle Paul lived out and was accused of being a weakling because of it, that Christ lived out and therefore as a result died. He said, he kind of goes back to this idea. He said, I ask when I'm present here, and he's planning a visit to the Corinthian church, and he ends up staying there for three months, that I need not be bold with the confidence which I propose to, to be courageous to some. In other words, he wants them to do the job of church discipline before he gets there. He doesn't want to spend his whole time with the Corinthians and finally having that wonderful reunion and have to start excommunicating people. He needs the leaders to show some backbone and to address the sin in the congregation. And if that means the people aren't retent, uh, repenting, that they're thrown out of the church. Get the wolves out of the sheep pen before they eat any more sheep. So he's, he's, he's calling the Corinthians here uh, to, to, to uh, action here. Their influence is diminished, but it's not yet extinguished. Uh, he'll go on in 2 Corinthians 11 to say this, um, uh, about them, so uh, th- th- these are the kind of people that they, uh, they, they look for an opportunity uh, to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their needs." You know, it's uh, cults tend to not start by someone standing up and saying, hey, let's just go out and kill some people, <laughs> you know. No, they, 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 put, a, they put a holy, peaceful uh, a veneer on what their heart is actually showing. They are, they are uh, disguising themselves as angels of light. And these false teachers have, 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 have oh, we're, we're just so concerned about you. That Apostle Paul is such a bad influence. Let us give you some more enlightened understanding so that you won't fall down the way. And, and, and he's saying, enough of that. Y'all have been putting up with that for too long. You know, our church, in many ways, is a, is a refugee center for people who've been run out of other churches who have seen compromise come in over the years, who have seen the, the, uh, the light just extinguished by, by the darkness. So, so those of you, especially those of you who've been hurt in the, the religious wars of Protestantism over the last few years, we can't afford to lose this church, right? So when you come, you come to worship. When, 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 we, when I preach, you're following along in the Bible to make sure what I'm saying is true. We want accountability. We embrace the Westminster Confession of Faith, the, most, the best summary of Christianity ever created by man. We have an accountability system, a government that keeps people accountable. But if you just passively accept everything, we could become like the churches you left. It's your responsibility to, to, to be a sheep with a taste for wolf. To be on the alert to pull on the full armor of God. So their influence has not been diminished here. These interlopers, these detractors, uh, one of the things they're accusing Paul of, see, again, they come from a Greek philosophical situation, which is is very humanistic. Uh, They they believe that uh, a really good leader, a, a church planner, for instance, or an apostle, should be extremely eloquent. 
and should be extremely pervas- uh, uh, persuasive and should be good-looking and have a, a, an amazingly hairsprayed hairdo, bouffant hairdo and perfectly straight teeth and that they should have, they should have a, a stage and a theater for which they can give amazing oratory skills and that they should just bring people along to the, to the height of emotion and this kind of thing because that's what the, that's what the, the sophists did. They would go from town to town and impress people with their speaking ability and all that. The only person Paul was trying to impress was God. And they saw that as weakness. In other words, they're kind of like, listen, if he was a genuine apostle, he would be a lot more manipulative than he is. (laughs) I mean, like, hello? Who wants that? Surprisingly, a lot of people. You know, one thing I love about uh, about our church is we we really... it's just simple. That order of worship that you're holding is just simple. And I, and I dare you to find anything in there that's not in the Bible. Look at this room. The walls are brown, <laughs> you know? I mean, we, got, we do have these kind of way cool graphic banners here. Um, that's, we don't even... I mean, that's it. You know, this is... I mean, we can't pan the camera right now because we'll find somebody sleeping. But uh, there's just... There, there's, none, there's none of you, I don't think have been manipulated to come here. You've not been wowed by showbiz. We've not turned on the Hollywood. You know why? First of all, I just ain't got the stuff for it, you know. Joel Osteen, I am not. Uh, Part of it is we just trust that the word of God will not return void. And frankly, we don't want members, we don't want attenders who were manipulated here because they're just going to cause trouble. we're, we're, we're serious Christians for people who want to have a serious faith. Now, by serious, I don't mean, you know, uptight. But I mean people who just really want to worship. They want the Bible. They don't want the distractions. They don't want to join because of all the programs or the free daycare or whatever it might be. And I just applaud y'all. It takes a lot to, to kind of look through that. It really does. Well, I think that's the... And people make fun of us because of it. Probably, I mean, I don't, they don't make fun of me right in front of our face, but you've probably heard, right? Oh, that church is so stuffy, whatever. You know, oh yeah, there's, I don't know why anybody go there. Good. <laughs> it's just the Bible. It's just truth. Simple hymns, simple service of worship. No one's going to be manipulated to join this church. And this is the kind of thing that drove these guys crazy about the Apostle Paul here. They regarded him as being in the flesh because he was so different from the rest of the the Greeks. And basically, that success that uh, that they would want, they would actually expect Paul to actually... they, They saw the pain that he was going through as being evidence that he really wasn't very successful. If he was really good at what he did, he would be rich. He would be uh, popular. He would be supported by the government, whatever. And the guy's just got a trail of tears. But as he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles him in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlists him as a soldier. That's what you are. Soldiers of Jesus Christ. And what do soldiers do? Well, the next part here, verses 3 through 5, we are to 
wage combat for the truth here. We do not walk with the flesh. I'm sorry, though we walk in the flesh, we are actually part of this world. We do not war according to the flesh here. So he reminds them here of the spiritual battle that we're in. That makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Spiritual stuff makes them uncomfortable. But by faith, we recognize that we are in a war. Now, this is not a new thought for them. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says here, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel message is just not complicated. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The wisdom of men. There's a story, wonderful story from George Whitfield. Where Whitfield, you know, Whitfield, uh, he did have this gift of, uh, of, of being able to preach. They said up to 10,000 people could hear him. He just had this amazing voice. Where just back in the days before a media booth, he could just preach to that many people. And the Lord used him as an evangelist to bring about the second great awakening. Just thousands of people got converted under his, under his ministry. And there's, one day he was on the streets of London and this drunk comes up to him and uh, says, oh, oh, Dr. Whitfield, Dr. Whitfield, <clears throat> you were in town a few years ago and I'm one of your converts, you know. And Whitfield says, you look like one of my converts, you know. <laughs> but if you were a convert of God, you wouldn't probably look that way. And this is what Paul is saying here, uh, that your faith will not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. There's got to be a supernatural power that occurs, a filling of the Holy Spirit for people to appreciate this. He, uh, again, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, we've received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, the devil, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We do not preach ourselves. But I've got to tell you, that takes, that's hard. That, that takes a lot of practice. It takes discipline. Because, you know, we're always wanting to preach ourselves. We want to make things all about us. You know, especially you middle children, you know. You know, it's like, can I get some attention here? You're like, what was, the, what was the middle Brady Bunch child? Not Jan. I See, I can't remember her name because she was the middle child, right? All right, so, you know, we're always trying to promote it, you know, but we, just, we can't afford to do that. It's not about us. The name of this church is Christ Reformed Church. It's all about him. And you know what? Those of you who have the Holy Spirit, that's what you want. That's really what you, what you want. But boy, what a powerful passage this is, right? For the weapons of our warfare, we're in a warfare and we have weapons, are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Boy, if we could just see for a few minutes the warfare that's going on in this very room as we speak, the demons and the angels that are at work battling one another. 
you want a little bit of glimpse of this, go to that passage in Daniel where um, Gabriel has been dispatched from heaven to give a message to Daniel, but he said he was delayed because he was withheld by the prince of Persia, a demonic power over the, the kingdom of Persia. And then Michael and the other angels came to rescue him. I get goosebumps thinking about it. You can take that stuff too far, but we are in a warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, right? Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having gird your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which is, which, uh, which is able to sting, distinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. If you study ancient military history, the goal of just about every army that marched in phalanxes back then was to stand firm. The Roman tortoises, the Roman positions, the Greek phalanxes, they would go in a shield wall with spears or swords or whatever it might be towards the enemy. If that wall broke and the barbaric Germans got in, that's not an insult to you barbaric Germans, but the barbaric Germans got, if they got into the middle of that, those Romans were toast. Every man had to stand firm to keep the enemy on the outside of that shield wall. This is one reason why he presses this. How do you do it? Well, you keep their full armor on. One Roman soldier drops his shield. One of them, of a thousand who drops his shield, is going to make the rest of them vulnerable. So what does he do here? Uh, Notice this, that it goes on here with uh, verse uh, 5 here. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Uh, There's a powerful destruction. And what are we destroying? We're destroying these fortresses. We're on the offensive, folks. We're not on the defensive. We're on the offensive. We're going out and destroying these fortresses. Now, Paul defines fortresses as speculations here, kind of a general word referring to human human or demonic thoughts, opinions, uh, philosophies, reasonings, psychologies, theories, uh, whatever that's against the knowledge of God. Think about it today. Statism, from cradle to grave, the, the fact that the United States government is supposed to be taking care of you completely, right? There's a worship. We've, we've made statism an idol. Humanism. There is no God. We're just evolved creatures. You better get what you can out of this life, right? Liberalism. Uh, again, many of you have come from churches that, that started to embrace liberalism. They just don't believe in the supernatural. Uh, they, go, they, they highlight their Bible with a black pen. Anything supernatural, this is the Jesus movement, this search for historic Jesus, all this kind of stuff. They just don't believe in the supernatural. They just want to make Jesus an example, and that's it. That's it. Communism, uh, immorality, the cults. You are a soldier against those fortresses, and we are supposed to make a stand. And I'm telling you one thing, those fortresses, there's a lot of them these days, aren't they? And the nonsense that they expect people to believe is just, we used to have 
actually deal with this with people that were actually rational, the irrationality of some of the things that we're having to combat and just remind people of just plain thinking, forget the gospel, just plain thinking is it's becoming more and more difficult, isn't it? I tell you what will help you. You've got to learn to hate lies. You've got to learn to hate darkness. You've got to learn to hate not the people, but the truths, the, the, the false things that they, that they proclaim, that they claim to be uh, truths. Uh, as I recall, it, it, the Battle of Kasserine Pass, it was the United States' uh, first uh, uh, full-on effort against the Germans in North Africa in World War II, and we just got busted. The Germans came through the lines, uh, and, and we lost. And, and as I, I recall, there was conversation there about how can the Americans end up, we've just been humiliated, how are we going to end up fighting the Germans And Patton says, when we learn to hate, when we learn to hate, there is an appropriate level of hate that we all need. Let me give you an example. Have y'all read C.S. Lewis's space trilogy? Okay, the nerds nerds have. Um, Yeah, read it this summer or listen to it this summer. It is uh, it is powerful. Uh, and it's just one of my, and my favorite of the ones is about, is Paralandra. And again, to give you kind of the, the, the setup here, uh, uh, this might be a little bit of a, a spoiler alert, but you'll all forget it anyway. But uh, Paralandra is Venus, the planet Venus. All right. Uh, the hero of the story, Arthur Ransom, is taken to Venus by some angels. And, uh, and he meets this woman, and she's like the Eve of Venus, okay, and uh, and he 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 comes to know her, and he realizes that he is at he is at Venus at the beginning of creation, like what it would be like to be at Earth when Adam and Eve were there in all their purity in, in paradise. But there's another figure there. There is a demonic, demon possessed former mad scientist who comes to Earth, and his desire is to corrupt her to cause her to fall, so that Venus will fall just like Earth did. You following along with me? You, do you want to read it more now or less after that explanation? All right, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a lot of blank stares. Listen to this. Listen to this uh, explanation of where I'm going here. Then an experience, t- talking about uh, going, what's going through Arthur Ransom's mind here, then an experience that perhaps no good man can ever have in the world, our world, came over him, a torrent of perfectly unmixed and lawful hatred. The energy of hatred, of hating, never before felt without some guilt or some dim knowledge that he was failing fully to distinguish the sinner from the sin, rose into his arms and legs till he felt that they were pillars of burning blood. What was before him appeared no longer a creature of corrupted deal. That's the the demon-possessed scientist. Uh, But it was corruption itself to which will uh, was attached only as an instrument. Ages ago... It had been a person, but the ruins of personality now survived it only as weapons at the disposal of a furious self-exiled negation. It is perhaps difficult to understand why this filled ransom, not with horror, but with a kind of joy. The joy that came from finding at last what hatred was made for. Hatred has a purpose. That purpose has been seen throughout human history, and more often than not, our country has been on the right side of that purpose. We've got a checkered past like all nations. We're fallen. But if it wasn't for hatred, Nazism would not have been defeated. Japanese imperialism would not be defeated. 
You should hate what the Russians are doing to the Ukrainians right now. And you should hate the lies that are out there masking themselves as light when they are nothing but darkness. Psalm 97.10, you who love the Lord hate evil. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Amos 5.15, hate evil and love good. Romans 12.9, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, when you're doing that, when you're hating, you really do need to distinguish between the sin and the sinner. You're never called to hate. You're called to love your enemy. But what they teach is wrong. And you should hate what they teach. But you should do it with humility. You see, you used to be on that side. I was talking to someone this week who's, uh, who's I think is their pastor or their professor, had a conversion experience similar to mine. I, in 1979, 1980, I read Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. Thoroughly unbiblical, uh, but, but riveting. <laughs> and he goes through this whole idea. It's sort of like the Left Behind series of, of your grandparents and your parents. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, he goes for chapters without a verse, but he paints this picture. There's going to be a giant, a climactic battle at the end of time before the return of Christ. Most folks believe that, that principle. And uh, it's interesting, if you can actually stand over, you go to Megiddo in Israel, you actually f- go over the field of Armageddon and see where that battle is going to play. If that's not just figurative language, that's always the challenging part. But I'm reading that book, and it dawns on me, I'm on the wrong side. I'm fighting for the bad guys. And that was one of the things the Lord, even though that book was not real well written, that was one of the things the Lord brought to my mind. And he showed me truth, and I decided to be on, well, through God's grace, I got on the right side. None of us want to be on that wrong side. Well, one way to do this is we have a responsibility to hate evil. With humility, recognizing the fact that we were also under its power at one point in time. And how do we do that? We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. A conquering army always took prisoners. We're going to take those thoughts captives. We have to do that in our own lives. We have to do that in our culture. We have to do that in the church. I like what Hughes says here. By stacking these terms, Paul portrays his ministry as a mighty conquering army that overcomes every opposing force. And then you see here the correction of error in verse 6 just very quickly. And we were ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. So in other words, he wants them to practice church discipline. You need to punish disobedience. How far you take that, Matthew 18 tells us the principles of church discipline. We have a whole section of our constitution that tells us how to handle that. But it needs to be done. This is a problem for Southerners. You know, you know someone in a Southern church, they go and commit heresy. and was, Oh, he didn't. Bless his heart. He didn't mean to commit heresy. Well, yeah, he did. Okay? So that's one reason why God's blessed us with a bunch of northerners coming into our church to help us to address things that need to be addressed. You know, because we want to nice everybody to death. You know? It's like Aunt B is in charge of the church or something like that, you know? You just got to rise up every now and then and hate evil, Right? And then he says, whenever the obedience is complete, he's, he is kind of inferring there, obviously, your obedience is not yet complete. Yeah, you've repented. Yeah, you're starting to bring up that collection again. But if you're still tolerating wolves in the flock, 
you're not completely obedient. And he wants them to handle all that stuff before he ends up getting there. Y'all, this isn't just pastor elder stuff. This is all of our responsibility. You, you didn't realize it maybe when you prayed the sinner's prayer, when you received the Holy Spirit, however you want to put it, when you recognized the Lord as Lord of your life and everything, but you joined the army. You enlisted, you know? You became like that Rogers guy, the little Rogers guy, that, and you got converted, and you became Wonder Man. What? That obviously didn't plan that illustration. Captain America, thank you, Captain America, right? We're Captain America. We're Captain Christian. No, listen. Oh, I wish we could edit that out. So, obviously not too eloquent today. And you still come back the next Sunday. That means, you know, the Holy Spirit brought you here, right? So the question is not whether we're at war with, for the souls of men. The question is whether or not you're willing to go to combat. That's really the question. Are you willing to be part of this army? You are part of the army. Are you willing to fight? You're willing to pick up your, your weapons and put on your full armor and recognize the call that we have in our lives. Onward then, ye people, join our happy throng. Blend with ours your voices in the triumph song. Glory, Lord, and honor unto Christ the King. This through countless angels, men and angels sing. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. When Jesus came in on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, the triumphant entry, we were in that army. We just didn't know it yet. And when he comes back and puts all things right, we will be in that army. We just don't see that right yet. Until that time, let us be faithful to combat the errors of this world. Father, I do pray that you would help us to be brave. We're not. We want to be liked. We'd rather be liked than we would rather be holy. But we have a mission. We have a commission. We are soldiers in your army. Help us just to recognize what an honor that is. Our general, our great king will not fail us. And when you do come back, let us not have shame at your return. Let us, none of us be accused of being deserters or cowards. And bless us to have a wisdom and an understanding about who is the enemy and who is not. And help us to be able to take up the spiritual warfare that we are part of, whether we recognize it or not. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.